0: For the past few months, we have been uh, considering 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. The subject of these chapters is what we refer to as spiritual gifts. And uh, spiritual gifts, at least as we have defined them, are supernatural abilities that the Holy Spirit empowers us to perform so that the body of Christ around us might be built up. Supernatural abilities empowered by the Spirit So that the body of Christ might be built up. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament lists some of those spiritual gifts that we find. Prophecy, tongues, healing, apostles, pastors, teachers, administrators, the gifts of help, the gifts of mercy, the gifts of knowledge, and the list could go on. We've covered them quite extensively. But what we have learned is that the Holy Spirit empowers every member Every member, every member with gifts, so that they might use those gifts to serve other people, to love other people, so that those other people can be built up, so that the body of Christ can be built up. So the eye doesn't do the same job as the hand, but the eye needs the hand, and the hand needs the eye. This is The argument we find in chapter 12. By God's design, you are inadequate to do life on your own. I'm going to say that again. By God's design, you are inadequate to do life on your own. You need other people. You need the body of Christ. You need their gifting. Just this uh, last week or a week or so ago, I came across this picture on my Twitter feed. If these guys want to throw it up there on the screen... Uh, for us to look at. The picture's not coming up. Oh, man. Man, is it your fault or is it my fault? It's his fault. Elijah says it's your fault, Vic. Oh, man. So it's coming up on the slide. It just won't show it on the thing there. Oh, the slide's white. I'm sorry. I'll send it out in an email. Anyway, it's a picture of uh, two guys. One of the guys, I'll just describe it for you. It won't be as impactful, but this is why I never use other pictures. Why I just always put a screen up there and, and don't do anything else. There's a guy named Charles B. Tripp. Charles B. Tripp is armless. This is uh, from about 1890s. And also in the picture are, is Eli Bowen, and uh, Eli Bowen is legless, And these were two pretty famous figures from that time frame. One of them was known as the wonderful armless man. The other was known as the wonderful legless man. And they did all these tricks. The armless guy could do about anything you could do with your arms with his feet. It's kind of gross, but he could do it anyway. But the picture shows them both on a tandem bicycle. Uh, The armless man is on the back, and he's pedaling the bicycle. And the legless man is on the front seat, and he is steering the bicycle. And when I saw that picture, I thought, man, that is the church. That's us because some of us are spiritually armless. We just don't have the ability in us. Some of us are spiritually legless. We don't have the ability in us. But we come together, and we can pedal the bike wherever we need to go. That's God's design for the church. We do life together. We belong, and we proceed contending against god's design though there's always contention right is our own self interest our own our own selfish desires act against we don't want to need other people we don't want other people to to somehow be above us or maybe perceived as better than us we want to be independent we want to be noted And when other people come into the mix we struggle with those things. and In the Corinthian church, many were abusing their gifts for these very self-centered, self-interest reasons. Personal gain. Some who had the, the prestigious, at least what they considered the prestigious gift of tongues, they came to a conclusion in their mind that they didn't really need any of the other people in the church. They had what they perceived to be the best gift. And if they had this gift, then they didn't need the other people. But guess what? All those other people needed them. And so it became an issue of power. And so Paul writes chapters 12, 13, and 14 to combat their bad theology that was, as we have said, leading to very bad behavior. In chapter 12, Paul introduces us to the idea of the spiritual gifts and he talks about our interdependence upon each other, how we need other gifts, how we need other Christians in our lives. We spent a considerable number of weeks working through each of those gifts and trying to define them at least as best we could. And then we went to chapter 14, which we've covered most of up to this point, but Paul there argues that the gift of, of prophecy is more useful than the gift of tongues to the church. Those were the real the juggernauts in the Corinthian church, and Paul wants them to understand that prophecy is more useful. But the real answer to the Corinthian church's problem wasn't to to ban the exercise of spiritual gifts. Paul didn't suggest that they would even disband the church and maybe try to start over. In fact, the final verse of chapter 12, verse 31, provides for us a clue to the real answer. Here's what Paul writes. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Yeah, you should desire gifts. You should desire the gifting of the Spirit. You need it. Other people around you need it. But he goes on and says, but then, or he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So, so what is this more excellent way? What is the answer to the pride and the, the fighting and the division and the showmanship we found in the church of Corinth and that we sometimes find in our own lives? Notice chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not love, I am a noisy gong and I am a clanging cymbal. And if I had all all prophetic power, every bit of it, and, and I understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I had all faith so that I could even remove mountains, but I have not love, I am Nothing. Nothing. And if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. In other words, it doesn't keep records of wrongs. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And here's where we pick up today. Love never. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues... And then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So what's the answer? Love. Love. And this summer we've spent eight weeks working through this particular chapter, defining, describing what love is, what love is not, And today we bring it to a close as we consider this truth, that love is superior to any and all of the spiritual gifts. Love is the more excellent way. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for where we have been in your word. Months we've spent thinking through spiritual gifts, thinking through what it is to do life together, to belong to the body And I rejoice that there has been growth. There has been uh, individuals exercising their gifts, building up the body. We've talked about love. God, we focused on you week after week and the love that you show us as an example of the love we're to have for each other. Help us now as we look at Paul's final arguments here to be even more motivated and encouraged in our love, in our gifting. Spirit of God, work. We pray you would work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul provides some arguments here. He wants to get the point across that love is the greatest, that love is the more excellent way. So the first thing that he argues is this, that the gifts, they're they're temporary. Notice verse 8. He says, love never ends. Love never ends. We're right here. I think we're right on the last line, right? Love never fails. We're almost done with this thing. So love never ends, but but prophecies, they're going to end. They're going to cease. Tongues, they will will cease. They will be done away with. Knowledge, it will pass away as well. Now, if, if you're thinking through that, there's a few questions that may come to mind. When will these things cease? When will these things pass away? Uh, Why are they going to cease? Why will they pass away? And and is Paul just simply pointing to these three? Will these three be the ones that cease? Or will all of the spiritual gifts cease? Well, let's tackle that last question first. I, I think Paul mentions these three as examples of all of the spiritual gifts, of all of those things. These three represent the whole list. Paul is saying there's coming a day when there will be no need for spiritual gifts. And in that day, love will still remain. Love will still be there. Now, some of this um, will be answered as we we continue on. But one of the big questions that we we already have asked and we've addressed was in regards to that question, when will they cease? When are the gifts going to be done away with? Or, as some would put it, just depending on your background, did they already cease? Is prophecy still viable? Is tongues still viable? Many teach that revelatory gifts like these, knowledge, prophecy, tongues, have already ceased because we don't need any more revelation from God. We have the scriptures. We have his word. And I understand this argument. I've made that argument for a number of years in my own life. But I am not willing to say that the gifts have completely ceased. I'm not willing to go that far. Now, we can have differing viewpoints on that. You may have a different viewpoint than I do, and that's fine. But I do believe that God still uses these gifts to build up the church. And I, I think specifically in contexts where they don't have access to the Scriptures and the Word of God like we have here in the United States of America. These gifts are still viable. God still uses them to build the church. And so argument one is this. The gifts are temporary, but love its not temporary. Love will remain. Love will continue. The second argument is this. The gifts are partial. They're partial. In these verses, Paul presents us with some really beautiful imagery, even more beautiful truths. And he sets this up starting in verse 9. Look what he says. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that partial, that part will pass away. Now, from what we have already learned in, in this particular letter about the Corinthians Some of them were claiming to have full knowledge. In other words, they were saying, I don't need anything else. I have arrived at the level of wisdom that man must arrive to. I understand all things. Uh, They thought they were wise and mature. And so it's safe to say that Paul is kind of shocking them, at least their ego, by a statement like this, that you only know in part, he says. And he's already said something similar to that back in chapter 8. He says this in the first couple of verses. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know, and he, this is quotes, this is what they would say, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. Just gives you a big old head. But love, well, love builds up. Love affects the whole body. And then I love this line. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> so if you think you know something, you don't know something. Uh, and that, That's what we learn as we move through life. I think the, the older we get, the more mature we get, the, the more we realize, I don't know very much. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have as much knowledge as I thought I had. And we love knowledge. We love it. A, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I watched a documentary on Albert Einstein. Fascinating. Uh, Albert Einstein challenged, really, his his idol, Isaac Newton, who was hundreds of years before him, in Isaac Newton theory of of gravity. And and Isaac Newton, as he defined gravity, defined that the earth is is pulling these things down, the apple fell, and it, it pulled it down. And even Newton, according to historians, he wasn't really settled in his brain on that. That didn't quite make sense to him. And so Einstein comes along and he's, he's just thinking about stuff. He just daydreams. And he's just daydreaming and he's thinking about a guy in an elevator and he, he comes up with these ideas that you know time and space are moving together and, and that it's not necessarily gravity and things being pulled together, things are being pushed because uh, space is actually being bent by these masses. And it's all this crazy stuff that he comes up with, the general theory of relativity, and he proves it. And I was, I was sitting there watching that and thinking, man, this is nuts. I mean, the guy just sits there and he's just thinking about stuff and this, this kind of stuff. Everybody around him was thinking, you're nuts. But then he proved it. Wow. And every day, scientists, mathematicians, researchers learn more about us. Every day they learn more about the universe that we call home. But no matter how much we learn, we're still only scratching the surface. And even the smartest astrophysicists will tell you the same thing. We're just scratching the surface. We only know in part. We only know in part. No matter how big our brains get, no matter how big of mysteries we discover. And the same is true with God. I mean, we know God. We know know that He's holy. We're singing about those things this morning. We know that He loves us. We know that He's just. We know that He's righteous. We know that He's eternal. But even with all we know and all we continue to discover about Him in the Word and in creation, we're still only scratching the surface of who He is. We know enough But we certainly don't know the full reality of our Creator, just a fraction. But as the text says, there's a day coming when our partial knowledge will pass away. When when will that happen? What's going to replace that powerful knowledge? When when is this perfect? It says when the perfect comes, that's going to happen. Well, what are we talking about? Well, let's, let's read on. Notice verse 11. This is when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We've got some, uh, we've got some seniors in the room. Just started their senior year of high school. Brooke, Abby, Elijah, Jordan, who's here sometimes. I got all the seniors, right? Oh, oh Matthew, yes, Matthew. Forget about you, buddy, over there. Seniors. Uh, not here today, but he was here last week, was um, CJ, Charlie, Charles, I don't know what we're calling him yet. It's not settled. Chucky. Yeah, I'll say it today. I won't say that when Chuck's here, because Chuck does not like that word. Uh, there's a big difference between the knowledge and the expectations that we have for Matthew and we have for, for CJ. Right? Matthew, we expect, at least I think his parents have expected, he can feed himself. Right? He's matured that much. He, he doesn't need diapers anymore. Uh, he can drive a car. He can figure out math problems on his own. He's, he's, he's matured as life has gone on. We don't have those same expectations of a little baby. It's just the way it works. Here, here's what Paul's saying, and he's saying this about himself. Paul says, I'm like a child, I think like a child. I act like a child. I reason like a child. I speak like a child. But there is coming a day when I will mature and I will think like a man. I will understand. My actions will be appropriate. My partial knowledge will give way to something else. But what is that something else? Let's keep going, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Well, Now I I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Here we have one more illustration of sorts. Seeing someone in a dim mirror or, or a poor reflection, that's the idea, versus seeing somebody face to face. I'm sure everyone in the room has been in a, a conversation where you've tried to describe, maybe it was a situation, something you saw, somebody you saw, to another person, and you, you were using your words, and you're trying to, 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 to paint this picture. Maybe you even got a, a piece of paper you sketched out, and you eventually kind of just get so fresh, you say, you just had to see it for yourself. Because words don't do it justice. Our descriptions can't do it justice. This summer, uh, our family went to South Dakota and uh, saw some pretty cool stuff. Got to see Mount Rushmore, uh, the Black Hills, drove over into Wyoming and saw Devil's Tower. Uh, we saw the Badlands, Carhenge. I don't know if you've ever been to Carhenge. That's in western Nebraska, but it's, a, it's an exact replica of Stonehenge, but it's made out of cars. Uh, so it is pretty spectacular. Uh, and out of all of those things, there's no way that I could adequately describe them to you. Even just trying to describe the splendor of Carhens to you, I fail. Right? You have to see something like that for yourself. I couldn't. I couldn't describe for you uh, the amazing colors and just erosion of the geography in the Badlands and how ugly it is, but also how pretty it is at the same time. Words don't do it justice. You have to go see it with your own eyes. You have to be face-to-face with certain things to really grasp, or you just won't understand. Paul is arguing that right now, our knowledge, our understanding of God, even with prophecy and tongues and all of the spiritual gifts that we have, it's still like seeing him through a, a really bad mirror. It's just not a great picture. But one day, we'll be face to face. One day, our partial knowledge of Him, this incredible universe that He has created, will cease and it will be replaced with a full knowledge. We will know fully, just as today we are fully known by Him. That's an incredible statement. What a day that's coming. Karl Barth, theologian, he he wrote this, and I just appreciate the simplicity of this line. Because the sun rises, all lights go out. Hmm. So when are we going to see him face to face? I believe what Paul has in mind here is the establishment of the kingdom, the return of Christ, what Scripture refers to over and over as the day of the Lord. We just sang about part of that. We sang Revelation song, which is a, a, a picture that we see in Revelation 4 and 5 of us around the throne in heaven. What an incredible experience. Now, this doesn't mean that our gifts are useless. Right now... Our gifts are very useful. They give us the partial knowledge of God that we have. They give us the ability to build up and know more. And I'll take that over nothing, but one day we will see Christ face to face and our gifts will be obsolete. That's Paul's argument. Tongues aren't even going to matter Corinthians. It'd be like a rotary phone. How many of you have a rotary phone? Right? They're obsolete. Or like a, a VHS or beta, you know, I mean we we just don't that stuff doesn't even hardly exist anymore. Just th- just consider for a moment that promise. Face to face. Face to face. There's an old hymn with that title. I want to read you the, the, the words of that. It's always been one of my favorite. Miss Frank Breck is the one who wrote it, but it says, Face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ, who died for me? What rejoicing in His presence when are banished grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened, And the dark things shall be made plain. Face to face, I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory, I will see him by and by. What an incredible promise. But there's one more argument that is made, and really one that brings down the house. Paul says this love is eternal. See, the whole point of the section is to prove that love is greater than spiritual gifts. And so we, we've already noted that spiritual gifts, they're temporary, they're only partial. But what Paul argues now, in contrast, is that love is eternal. It's, it's full. It will last forever. And so he says, so now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Probably one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. Probably half of you in this room have that on some sort of plaque or something in your house. It's a very popular verse. Faith, hope, and love are three virtues that are often presented together in Scripture. This is the most famous presentation of them, but you can go to Romans 5 or Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1, and you can find these three virtues stuck together in a verse. Something from the early church putting these things together. Helping us to understand that they work together, and so in this argument, Paul isn't saying that faith and hope don't matter, but that just like spiritual gifts, faith and hope will eventually cease too. Think about right now, in the present, we need faith. You're here today in faith. You're not face to face with Jesus; you're face to face with me, and I'm far from that. But but by faith, you believe that Christ is Savior. Let me read to you what Hebrews 11, verse 1 says. I'm taking this from the net translation. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it, people of old received God's commandments. By faith we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. So faith is being convinced of what we cannot see. We don't see it. Faith is also required for our justification. The just will live by faith. We have to trust and believe that Jesus is Savior. But let me ask you this question What happens to faith when you stand face to face with Christ? You don't need it anymore. What, what you what you used to not be able to see and you believed in now, it's right in front of you. Faith is no longer necessary. Well, what about hope? Hope is a necessary part of our present situation too. We have to have hope. This is the expectation. Of our faith That, that Christ is going to return. That, that we have the promise of His presence for all eternity. That our sins would be forgiven. We hope and we wait expectantly for the return of Christ. But what happens to our hope when we stand face to face with Christ? At that moment, everything we have hoped for is right in front of us. We no longer need it. All of our hopes have come true what about love well we've just spent week after week discussing the necessity of it the necessary role that's meant to play in our relationship with God with others in fact when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment he said Deuteronomy 6 says love the Lord your God with all your heart so mind." Leviticus 18 says love your neighbor as yourself He said, the defining quality, the defining characteristic of my disciples will be love. The love they have for one another. But what happens to love when we stand face to face with Christ? Nothing. It continues. Love never ends. Love never fails. Faith, hope, prophecy, tongues, knowledge... All of it will cease, but love will not. It is the greatest of these. But what exactly makes it the greatest? Well, some argue that it's the greatest because it's eternal. It outlasts faith, hope, outlasts spiritual gifts. And I believe that is one of the correct answers. It is the greatest because it doesn't go away. But love is also the greatest because it describes so well for us the character of our God. John just put it flat out there for us in 1 John. God is love. It describes so well his his motivation for rescuing us from our sin and from ourselves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And love is the only thing, the only thing that can can hold a ragtag group of people like us together. It's the only thing strong enough to keep us focused on our, our purpose of knowing Him and making Him known. I hope today is not just about knowledge for you. It's part of the Corinthians problem. And it continues to be a problem for us. Will today be about gaining more knowledge or will today be about a commitment, repentance, a change in my life, in the way I live? Remember what, what Paul wrote to them earlier, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. I mean, it would be easy for us to leave today marveling at the brilliance of Paul. What an incredible argument he lays out, every time. Or will we leave humbly, repentantly, more like Jesus... Some of you are failing to love the church because you're not using your gifts to build up the body. The Spirit of God has empowered you to serve, to love, to build. you're not doing it kind of on the sidelines maybe not in the stadium i don't know and that's not love it's love but it's a self-love it's not a love for others it's not a love for the body find ways to serve other people You're struggling still and trying to figure out I don't know where to serve. I want to, I want to build the body, I want to engage. Please come see me. Talk to Dustin, talk to Chuck, our, our deacons, and we'll help you try to find a position, a place, somewhere to serve, someone to serve. So that you can use your gifts to build up the body. Love demands that of us. Love works, love acts. Love leaves heaven and puts on flesh and and comes and lives and dies. That's what love does. Some of you are failing to love because you're 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 refusing to repent. Your self-interest is in the way, your arrogance is in the way. Your impatience is in the way. All of these things that we've described and said, love is not this, love is this, and you're still living in what it is not, and you're saying, I don't want to change. I don't want to confess my sin to God. I don't want help. I want my list. And that's not love. You're called to love, repent, Today, there may be some here today who uh, you're failing to love because you don't really know what love is. You never really experienced it. You don't know the love of God that we're even talking about this morning. You you can't love because you don't know love. And I want to I want to tell you about it for just a moment. Here's what John said. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Listen to this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, here's, here's how we know the love of God. In this, the love of God was made known to us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved you, you ought also to love one another. Love is you before me, and the ultimate proof of that we find in Christ. Beats any romance novel or romance movie any day. What decisions will you make about love and the way you love others? After all, it is the greatest. It's the greatest of these. It's the most excellent way. Would you bow with me this morning?